the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. The story of the midwives in the first chapter of the book of Exodus is a fascinating tale that is told all too briefly in the biblical text. Ordered by the highest authority in the land to murder the very children that they have delivered if they are males, these women act in defiance. They don't refuse the Pharaoh's order, not in so many words, but they make use of their position and their knowledge to argue that they cannot do such a terrible thing. This is an incredibly brave response. Surely they could have been discovered and exposed and put to death for what they did. But they did it anyways. And for this, the Bible tells us, they were greatly rewarded. But who were they? And from where did they get such courage? These are questions that we may be able to explore by allowing their story to be heard. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 3.1 The Midwives Who Defied a God The woman cried aloud as her entire body spasmed with pain. If she had not been steadied on both sides, she surely would have fallen to the ground. But, as it was, with one assistant holding her left arm and the other the right, she maintained her position. She was squatting with her heels resting upon the bricks. These bricks were taken by the midwives to every delivery. Engraved with the image of the cow-shaped goddess Hathor and the dwarf Bess, these bricks provided magical protection to women at the most vulnerable juncture of their lives. Shifra crouched between her legs, full of concern. The poor woman was exhausted, and she would soon no longer be able to push. But clearly everything was not yet in place, and her hole was not open wide enough. If she did not deliver soon, this could end in disaster. Shifra's partner, Pua, was at the table nearby. She was mixing together herbs and ointments, and she chanted incantations under her breath. They both exchanged looks of concern, but quickly turned back to their work. The struggle was long and hard, and the two midwives were astonished at the strength and resilience of the mother-to-be. At the end, when there was nothing else to do, Pua placed the amulet of the goddess Bess on the mother's brow, 
while Shifra chanted the ancient formula. Come down, Placenta, come down. I am Horus, who conjures in order that she who is giving birth becomes better than she was, as if she was already delivered. Look, Hathor will lay her hand on her with an amulet of health. I am Horus, who saves her. In the end, all was well and the two midwives and their assistants were pleased to leave the child hungrily nursing at his mother's breast, while she smiled wearily. In their daily battle between life and death, they had chalked up another victory, and they could only be happy about that. The woman had been very lucky to have them to attend her. Among all the midwives in the land of Goshen, they were the ones who had the most training and experience. The others looked to them for guidance and wisdom. And they knew that many of their colleagues would not have been able to see this woman through. Shifra and Pua had been trained in the art of midwifery from early childhood. They had no memories of their own families and had been taken from their native land in the Levant while still very young. While they were technically slaves, they were very fortunate to have been given to the priestess of Hathor, and they had been raised in the sacred precincts. From their youth, they had ministered to the women who came to the sanctuary from all over to present their offerings and to pray for the opportunity to have a child. And as they grew older, they had served as assistants to the midwives carrying the bricks for them as they traveled around to attend to births, and holding the women in labor by their arms as they pushed and struggled in pain. In that time they had learned much and seen many things. Some of it was tragic, but so much of it was filled with great joy. When they had finally learned everything that they could from their masters, they were granted a degree of autonomy and independence for the wisdom that they had gained. They were sent to occupy priestly positions in the temple of Hathor that was in the land of Goshen. Goshen was a land mostly populated by the slaves who worked on Pharaoh's building projects. The women were poor and dirty and uncouth. They lacked the civilization of the Egyptians who lived farther south, along the main course of the river. As they worked among these lowest of slaves, the two midwives continued to appeal to the same gods and use the same incantations that they had been taught in their early years, but they soon learned that these unsophisticated slaves knew nothing about such gods. They seemed to worship some invisible god, or family of gods. They were not too clear on that question. They didn't worship in temples and didn't even have the artistry to make images. But despite such strange ideas over the years, and as they shared in some of the most important moments of their lives, Pua and Shifra bonded with the slave women and had come to respect them for their strength and resilience. Pua and Shifra were shocked when the summons reached them. 
they had been called to the court of the god who lives on earth, his royal divinity, the pharaoh who ruled over the two lands. As devotees of Hathor, they were, of course, bound in obedience to him, as were all the peoples in all the temples in Egypt, but they had never expected to stand in his holy presence. It was with great fear and trembling that they were shown into the room of presence. The pharaoh did not speak to them, of course. Such condescension was unthinkable. He sat with his sister consort on a high throne looking quite aloof and unconcerned, as was only right. It was one of the pharaoh's advisers who, who deigned to address the two women on the king's behalf. He explained that there had been some concern in the court of late. There had been restlessness among the slave folk of Goshen. They were foolish and ignorant slaves, and didn't realize how blessed they were to work on such magnificent projects that would stand forever as monuments to Pharaoh's greatness. But what could one expect from slaves? The Pharaoh had decided that the root of the problem was not the labor practices that were used by the Egyptian overseers. The problem was overpopulation. There were just too many of the damn slaves, and the herd needed to be thinned. That was where the midwives came in. Their orders were simple and straightforward. They were to continue to attend the births of the slave women in Goshen. But when each child was born, they were to look at the child's gender. If it was a girl, then fine, let her live. But if it was a boy, well, then they would have to act on Pharaoh's behalf. The boys were to be murdered. The midwives left the Divine Presence in shock. While they had stood there, they could do nothing but nod their heads and agree. Of course they would do what Pharaoh wished. They lived only to serve him. But as they left, they felt their resolve begin to fade. They were very lucky in the next two births that they assisted. When the child came out, they almost did not dare to look between its legs. They hoped against hope not to see the offending member, and their hearts were flooded with relief when they saw that it was not there. The third birth was not so lucky. It was a hard birth, with the labor lasting through the night. They had known there would be problems as soon as they arrived. The child had not turned and was clearly positioned wrongly within its mother's womb. They spent hours and used all of their incantations and their arcane arts trying to persuade it to move. Nothing worked, and when the child finally came, it presented with its feet first. The delivery was mercifully quick, but when the child came out, its bluish color indicated that all was not well. 
They worked frantically and quickly as they muttered prayers to Bess, the dwarf goddess, to protect the child from death. The prayers were effective, and as they cleared its mouth and nose using their own lips, they were gratified to hear it let out a mighty wail. Relief and joy flooded through them, and they actually laughed as they felt the pressure released from their bodies. In their joy, they forgot to look for a good twenty minutes. They wrapped the baby in strips of cloth and laid it against its mother's breast. It was a good sign when it found the nipple quickly and began to suck while the exhausted mother drifted off to sleep. They sat down and the grateful husband, a man named Amram, brought them some beer and a few morsels of bread, and they were sitting and unwinding when all of a sudden they remembered. They had to look. It was a boy. Of course it was. And as soon as they saw, they knew that they could not follow through on the orders that they had been given. There was no way that they could be at all involved in ending this life that they had just finished struggling so hard to begin. They didn't even discuss it together. They didn't have to. A glance shared between them was enough for them to agree that they would leave the child undisturbed. And so it was that the first male child, who was born under the Pharaoh's curse, a child who was given the name Aaron, was allowed to live. And once that precedent had been set, there was no going back. The other midwives who served in the area all followed the lead of Pua and Shifra. In this, as they did in all things, and the slave population continued to grow and the people to thrive despite the fire of their affliction. It took a while. The Pharaoh's officials were not particularly efficient when it came to looking after the needs of the slave folk. But eventually there was no escaping the fact that there were many young male children flourishing among the slave folk of Goshen. And as their numbers continued to grow, the unrest among them came to be noted by their taskmasters. Eventually, the midwives were summoned back into the presence of the pharaoh. As they approached the place, Pua and Shifra fully expected that they would not leave it alive. But they could not have any regrets. They were servants of Hathor and of Bess. They prayed regularly to the goddess Tawaret, the pregnant hippopotamus, who protected women at the most dangerous moment of their lives. Their service to all of these and many other gods and goddesses was to preserve life and hope for everyone, even for the ignorant slave women of Goshen, with their strange understanding of God. They knew that to do otherwise would have been a betrayal of everything that they had trained to be and called to do. Yes, they did owe obedience to the god Pharaoh but not to him alone.
when the two women were confronted with the evidence that they had not been doing what they had been ordered to do, with the evidence that the children of the slaves, both female and male, were thriving in Goshen, Shifra was struck dumb. She knew that she had no defense and was already preparing to stretch out her hands and kneel in supplication to ask that her death be swift and merciful. It was Pua who was struck with sudden inspiration and spoke up quickly. We left the Divine Presence with every intention of doing as we had been ordered, my lord. But we were prevented by the god Thoth, who speeds women through their delivery. Shifra looked up at her partner with alarm and suspicion. She understood what she was doing. She was trying to shift the blame to the gods. But she also understood that such an argument would not go very far in a court that was dominated by priests of many temples, including that of Thoth. But her colleague's words inspired her to try another angle, to use the attitudes toward the Goshen slaves she knew to be already active in the court, to reinforce their prejudices. Oh, my lord, you know what these slave folk are like. They have no culture, no understanding of the gods like we do. They are little better than animals, and they give birth like them. Why, in most cases, before one of us midwives can even get there, they have already delivered their filthy brood. They are not a thinking people. They are only good for the strength in their arms and bodies. You cannot use us to defeat them. Amazingly, they were allowed to go. The pharaoh and his officials actually seemed to have believed them. It was understandable, I suppose. They barely recognized the slaves as human beings. They would have believed anything that painted them as witless animals. The two women returned to their sister midwives and gave them the good news that they were no longer expected to carry out the pharaoh's unthinkable order. The woman rejoiced and gave thanks to Hathor, the protector of all pregnant women and their babies. That was not the end of it. Those who seek to destroy and kill because of their hatred and fear will never give up just because of one setback. The pharaoh tried other ways to cull his slave population, and for a while some of it even seemed to work. But, as often happens, even as the slaves suffered loss of life among them, and even as they struggled under ever heavier burdens in their tasks, the resentment in the community kept on growing until it became an unstoppable force. In the end, it only took one man to ignite a fire under the brewing discontent in Goshen. Though himself a son of slave children, this man had been raised among cultured Egyptians and been taught their ways and learned to worship their gods. But when he saw how his kin were treated in Goshen and then fled and spent some time in the desert where he met the god of his ancestors, he abandoned all Egyptian ways and returned with a fierce devotion to the god of the slaves.
he started something that changed the world. When, a generation after their heroic stand, a large group of Goshen slaves finally escaped their chains and ran into the desert, Pua and Shifra were too old to join them. But their children, raised among the slave folk, joined them willingly, taking with them the deep knowledge of their mothers. Thus the wisdom and knowledge of the midwives of Egypt was carried with the people into a new land, and Pua and Shifra would have an inheritance in that land. The story of the midwives in Egypt is brief and really offers more questions than it does answers. We do not know who these two midwives, Pua and Shifra, are. Their names do not seem to be Egyptian in form and may be Semitic names, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are Hebrews like the women that they serve. After all, Moses in the same story has a very Egyptian name and he is apparently Hebrew. I've worked on the assumption that while they may have come from a Semitic or Canaanite background, they weren't really one with the people of the Hebrews. That seems to be a fair assumption based on how they behave in the story. They obviously have a certain status in that they are even allowed into the presence of the Pharaoh. They also speak of the Hebrews to the Pharaoh as if they were not part of the same people. Jewish tradition and interpretation is divided on the origins of these two women. Some rabbis seem to have seen them as Jews, others not. Amazingly, we actually know a fair bit about the practice of midwifery in ancient Egypt. Several papyrus scrolls have been found that outline medical practices. We know which god the midwives called upon to aid the women that they were assisting. There were many. I referred to only a few in my telling of this tale in order that it not be too confusing. We know the charms and prayers that they used and the various treatments. Women in ancient Egypt generally gave birth in a crouching position with their feet resting upon two stones or bricks that were engraved with the images of these gods. Many such stones have been found and these stones are actually referred to in the Exodus passage. The phrase that is often translated as the birthing stool literally means the two stones in Hebrew. I have added in a few other practices that we know from the ancient scrolls. The story of the two midwives who rescued the people of Israel from slaughter is one of those stories that we skip over far too easily. It is a story of great heroism and of dedication to the preservation of lives. Pua and Shifra should stand as towering figures in the biblical tradition. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Join us next week as we explore another biblical story that, in my opinion, has been far too frequently overlooked. In the meantime, tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for the podcast is Ada. The theme music is Air Prelude. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons 
and can be found at incompetech.com. Send your requests, comments, and questions to at Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks to Gabrielle McCandless for playing both Pua and Shifra in this episode. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. One final word before I go. I know that I just said that the next episode will be in a week, but it will actually be in a month on February 27th. We will be retelling the story of Athalia, the only reigning queen in biblical history. You know you want to hear that one.